if we expect that new audiences, people that have never seen dance before, they don't know anything about dance, they have no idea why they should support it. If we expect that they're just going to come to that one show, fall in love, and then write a check, I think we're we're really we have our eggs in the wrong basket. Hello and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, which is brought to you by the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be speaking with choreographer Stephen Melendez, the artistic director of New York Theatre Ballet. When he got the job in 2022, Stephen became only the second person to lead the institution, taking the reins from its founder, Diana Beyer. In one way, he was destined to become its next leader, since his relationship with the company started when he was only seven years old. That's when Diana Beyer recruited him to train at NYTB school through the company's Lyft scholarship program. Then, as an adult, he went on to dance professionally with NYTB for 15 years. His dance career also included numerous international stints, including as a soloist dancer with Ballet Concierto in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and as a principal dancer with the Van Muine Theatre Ballet Company in Tartu, Estonia. In other ways, however, Stephen's rise to his current leadership position has been extraordinary, if not highly improbable. You see, when he started studying at NYTB at the age of seven, Stephen was living with his mother in a homeless shelter in the Bronx and would reside there for three years. Thanks to the Lyft program, as well as his inborn talent, of course, He was able to traverse innumerable barriers as he traveled several times a week from the South Bronx to Park Avenue and back again. Stephen's own journey is explored in the feature documentary film Lift, A Journey from Homelessness to the Ballet Stage, which was released in 2022 and won Best Documentary at San Francisco Dance Film Festival. The film, which spans six years, tracks Stephen as he works with three young dancers in the lift program who, just as he himself once did, have to leap over so many obstacles to pursue an art form that in many ways, financial, cultural, and historical, would have normally been completely inaccessible to them. Knowing that he'd been on the job just over a year, I started the interview by asking Stephen how this first year had gone. My first year has been a roller coaster, is the best way I can put it. I have had a very steep learning curve, and I've had a lot of really exciting successes and victories, and a lot of unexpected setbacks and things that didn't go quite the way I'd thought they would. But I think that's pretty typical for someone in my position. Um, One of the things that's much harder than I thought it would be is fundraising which is something I don't have any experience in. Had anyone told you it was going to be easy? (laughs) (laughs) No, nobody said it was going to be easy, but I figured, you know, there are plenty of people that do it in the world. And I, I don't know. It just, here's what I realized actually, and maybe this is what we'll get to talking about in a little bit is I don't have the pedigree 
of the kinds of people, the kinds of connections, the kinds of networks that are necessary to be a successful fundraiser for a nonprofit organization. And I'm realizing that perhaps that is one of the reasons why arts and dance and music and symphony and all of these things that require fundraising to stay vibrant are sort of an, um, I use this term, an old boys club um, or old women's club, as, as, as it might be in the dance world. It's really hard to make new friends, I guess, is, is the best way to put it. Then if you don't already know the people or have the connections, it's quite difficult to get in the door. So make friends in that rarefied world of wealthy board members who in New York are the bulk of the uh, fundraising community. That's exactly right. What I'm what I'm realizing is that, you know, a lot of those wealthy board members or donors or major givers or people in corporate institutions that hold the strings to, you know, corporate gifts know each other through their maybe their college networks, of which of course I didn't go to college. I was a dancer my whole life. Or they know each other through their family connections, of which as you know, I don't have very many family connections having come from uh, a very poor family, or they know each other through the social circles that they have cultivated through their time professionally. But as a dancer, my social circles were all other dancers and choreographers, and um, dancers and choreographers are notoriously not wealthy people in the United States. So it's a really interesting, difficult thing. And it's something that I, I'm learning now is really what separates the administrative staff in a lot of places from the artists in those same places. And I think that has a lot to do with, as I was saying before, pedigree. And I don't know the solution to that yet. New York Theatre Valley is taking a sort of grassroots approach, and I'll tell you all about that in a little bit. But grassroots only goes so far. Eventually, you need those handful of major gifts, major donors, you know, people who really have access I love that you've thrown us right into this conversation. I was kind of going to lead us gently to that point because it's happened a lot, especially since 2020 and the Black Lives Matter movement, that a lot of largely white board members have hired uh, artistic directors of color to take over certain performing arts institutions. Mm -hmm with the expectation that it'll be up to them to reinvent the company and diversify it. But you bring up a very good point, which is the money and therefore the power still resides in the hands of those traditional board member circles. So uh, you've said you don't know what the solution is, but how in this instance, are you finding a way to train yourself to make those friends? What, how are you negotiating it? I'm trying to be careful. Very, very early on, maybe it was week two of my new role, I had someone who was close to the New York Theatre Ballet organization, who had been around the organization for a long time, say to me, sort of offhanded, um, and, and I don't think they meant anything prejudicial or, or negative or pejorative by it, but they said to me, well, this is going to be great. What you really need to do is you know, really tap into your tribe. You know, you need to get your tribe on board. And I thought, well, that's an interesting choice of words, but I think I understood what they were saying. You know, what they were saying was that it's time to diversify our support base, our support network. And I thought, great, okay, how do I go out and find essentially what they're saying? How do I go out and find all the black and brown people who want to support, you know, New York Theater Ballet? So then I went to some other colleagues um, who had been around the organization for some time. And they said to me, well, 
why don't we get in touch with Oprah? And I thought, oh, that's that's interesting because is that the only is that the only wealthy black person you know? Is Oprah? I mean, that's 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 a little bit strange. And I had this sort of crisis of, I guess it's called imposter syndrome, right? I had this really personal crisis maybe two months into my into my role trying to figure out what the hell am I doing you know I I, I I don't I don't know how to solve this problem the people around me clearly are swimming in the deep water trying to figure it out and the advice that they're giving me is perhaps practical but mostly not applicable it felt at that time and I was looking around for someone anyone that I thought, was someone who might give me the time of day to walk me through this from a position of experience like mine. And I couldn't find anybody and it made me so frustrated or nobody that I knew personally. And I pride myself on knowing a lot of people in the dance world, but every person in the dance world that I knew of that was a successful person was not a person of color. And that really bothered me. I couldn't think of a single person that I could call up in my very, very, very long phone book of people that I've worked with who I could just say, hey, how do you approach this? You know, how do you, how do, you do this kind of fundraising stuff and how do you tap into these diverse um, fields? And it was my fiance uh, who said to me, she goes, well, actually, you do know one person. And I said, well, who's that? And she said, well, you know Darren Walker. Darren Walker, of course, is the president of the Ford Foundation. He is a personally very wealthy person, um, but he also holds the purse strings for the Ford Foundation. I mean, one of the largest, most philanthropic organizations on the planet. You know, he manages billions of dollars, is my guess. Um, and I thought he's he's never gonna what I can't call for. I can't call Darren Walker. Are you crazy? I mean, that would be the same like trying to call Oprah, right? right. Like that's just ridiculous. Um, but I had actually met him just a couple of months earlier at an event, and um, I did have his email address, uh, and so I wrote to him. I wrote like just a blind email out of the blue. I wrote to him and I said, I'm having some trouble. I'm new in my role. You know, can I pick your brain for a little bit of advice? And it was so interesting. One of the first things he said to me on the conversation that we did end up having um, was, well, how long did it take before somebody asked you to call Oprah? And I thought, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I thought, wow. wow, okay, this is a real thing. It's a real thing. There are people who really don't know and the amount that they don't know anything about how this all works makes it so that their first instinct for what the answer is, is so stereotypical that it's been heard before, you know? And so Darren and I, um, you know, we talked for a little bit. He gave me a lot of really great advice and I'm really appreciative of that early, I, I would say mentorship, but, you know, it was really such a short thing. It would be unfair to say that, but, uh, you know, really early advice from him and, here are some things that I've come to realize. The problem isn't only that there's a dearth of black and brown supporters for dance. The problem is that dance isn't trying to make itself accessible to black and brown people. And so then, therefore, of course, we don't have new, young, hip supporters that from diverse backgrounds. You know, I think for a long time, especially classical ballet, prided itself, built a sort of allure that was explicitly founded in the idea that it was elite and exclusive 
And the people that were wealthy and supporting it, I think to some part were supporting it because it was elite and exclusive. You know, it's, it's a little bit like, um, I don't know, it's like a stereotype, you know, you know, nobody really needs that fancy car, but the rich person buys it because they know that everybody else knows that nobody else needs it. You know, right. it's, it's, it's kind of the exclusivity of it is the thing. So if it. you're on the board of a prestigious ballet company, it says a lot about you societally. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So what I think we need to do, and I've been really overt and explicit about this in every place that I've had the opportunity to speak, is to build an organization that is designed for new to dance audiences. I think that this is a term that I've invented. In fact, I think that because uh, very early on when I started using that term, new to dance audiences, our grant writer at the time, she, she said to me, Stephen, that's not a thing. Nobody knows what that means. You have to, you have to, you have to explain that. She was quite upset that I was taking so many of her, her characters in the, in the grant space you know, to write in her one paragraph that she had to explain everything I was saying. But I, I, th I think this is the trick. I think we have to cultivate new to dance audiences and we have to do it from the position that understands that most new audiences don't care about the product in the way that older audience, not older age wise, but uh, legacy audiences, we'll call them legacy audiences care about. And um, that's because I think the legacy audiences already understand that the product is the result of the artistic process. And the artistic process is really where the magic is. That's what they are supporting. I don't think I understand what you mean by product exactly. Yeah. In this context. So in this context, the product is the performance. I think that if we, if we distill all that dancers and choreographers and set designers and costume designers and librettists and conductors and all of the artists that work to create a new production, whether it's a five minute piece for some gala somewhere, or if it's a new 90 minute, you know, ballet or three hour ballet, the product that the show itself, the night of opening night, that three hours of the performance is the product. And if we expect that new audiences, people that have never seen dance before, they don't know anything about dance. They have no idea why they should support it. If we expect that they're just going to come to that one show, fall in love, and then write a check, I think we're, we're really, we have our eggs in the wrong basket. Instead, what we need to do is invite those people to see and understand everything that it took to get to the product of the final performance. We, they have to understand the conversations that the artists are having with each other in the room. They have to understand the blood, sweat, and tears that goes into creating something. They have to understand the passion of why that particular story needs to be told and it has to resonate with them so that by the time they get to opening night, they already love the ballet. They haven't seen the ballet, but they already love the ballet because they know what the ballet represents. And that's, that's a really different and unique perspective, I think, than what the dance industry generally has been operating on for a really long time. So how are you both making the process more transparent for your audience and also making the product more fascinating? Right. So I have a new program called Between the Acts. And it's um, essentially an audience cultivation, community engagement, outreach program. Um, Between the Acts are a series of events that are free to the public. And they happen in 
third spaces. So they happen at, well, last year we did one or two at the local Chase Bank, literally in the bank, like where they have the ATM vestibule. We've done a handful in libraries. We've done some in um, in elementary school gymnasiums. Um, We have plans to do some in local coffee shops around New York City. You know, the third spaces. So the people aren't coming to a theater. They're not coming to our studio. And also we're not going into their home. Of course, that would be intrusive. But, you know, we're meeting at some convenient third space. Like it's like going to a barbershop. That's the best way to describe it. Um, And it's designed for new to dance audiences. You know, we already do what we can to bring the ticket prices down. Um, We already do what we can to keep the shows at an appropriate length and on the best day of the weeks and all that kind of stuff. But this thing of balancing the social capital investment, if if we can solve that, then we can start to engage new audiences, I think. Um, we can become more accessible, which is what my mission is, is to be the most accessible dance company ever. In the documentary, Lyft, you also say some, the, uh, it follows, follows three dancers, and one of them is Victor, who is, I think, how old is he when the, we see him at 10 at the beginning, it's 16 yeah. at the end, I think, right? That sounds right, yeah. You say, I hope that Victor will be able to, and Victor also is, you meet him in a homeless shelter. Or public housing. Oh, public housing. Yeah. Public housing. I hope that Victor will be able to use his background and see where he is different from the dancers that have come before him to see what secret weapon he has as opposed to confronting the world in the way that I'm only now realizing I have. Yeah. So could you describe your secret weapon <laughs> and how yeah. you and how you deploy it? Yeah, th- there are two things. The big one, I think, actually is something that's internal. For most young people, they live, growing up in a sort of typical uh, youth, they are presented with opportunities to succeed, to achieve, whether they're small things or big things, whether it's, you know, they're told to take out the trash because that's their chore. They take out the trash and then they get their allowance, right? That's they're given an opportunity to do something, they do it, and then they're validated for having done it well. Or, you know, they're given the hurdle of passing the SAT and they have to study and practice for years and years and years, and then they do it and then they get into college, right? And then they know, okay, great, I passed that SAT, I did that. And they go into the world a little bit stronger with a little bit more confidence than they had before that. But for other young people, those young people that come from uh, approach life from deficit as a child, you know, with less, have, having less means, um, they are also often given fewer opportunities to achieve. They have fewer opportunities available to them in all walks of life, not just fewer opportunities available to them because they don't have money, but they have fewer opportunities for every conceivable thing. And consequently, they miss a really critical part of growing up, which is earning their own self-respect. They don't get a chance to experience wins. Exactly. They don't get a chance to experience wins. It's exactly what I'm saying. Exactly right. And in the dance world, every child is equal in the dance studio. You know, you teach five or six children how to do a pirouette on Tuesday And on Wednesday, when you come in and you give the same pirouette combination, if one of them falls over in the turn, they didn't fall over because the other kids are rich or because the other kids are white or because the other kids are whatever. They fell over because they didn't practice. That's that's entirely their own work to do that. And I think the children recognize that really quickly, really, really quickly. And then the opposite of that is true as well. They recognize, holy, holy cow. 
I just did that pirouette. Look at me. Oh man, I just did a double today. Look at me. And they earn their respect. They, they recognize that they can overcome, that they can achieve, that they can be viewed externally the same as all the other kids in the class and that they can view themselves in some way the same as all the other kids in the class. And that sets a young person up for success in everything they do. And for somebody like Victor, for somebody like me, for other children coming from the LIFT program and other outreach programs around the country, around the world, the way that we can go into the world knowing that we've already achieved so much just by virtue of existing until today, you know, that, that gives a kind of confidence where no other hurdle seems insurmountable. The external part is more to do with how the world perceives us. You know, it's interesting. Um, there are a couple of things that I've had a repeat experience with in my life. Um, the first one is looking at the flash of reaction on a person's face well, when I was younger, when I was a, when I was when I was a dancer. Now I'm not a dancer anymore, but when I was a dancer, telling them that I was a classical ballet dancer, and I could see their the gears in their brains sort of go, "Wait, what?" But you're okay. You know, and, and, and it sort of took them off guard a little bit, you know, because I wasn't, you know, a skinny, white, blonde ballerina girl, you know, they, they maybe I didn't, I didn't fit into the mold of what they thought a ballet dancer would be. A similar one is when I tell people that my, my father was gone from a, when I was a, a child, you know, I grew up in a single parent household. Usually that flash of reaction is a flash of almost pity or sympathy, you know, which speaks more to their presumption of what it must mean to grow up in a single parent household than it does to the reality of what it means growing up in a single parent household. You know, they assume that that means that I was missing something in some way. So anyway, these kinds of, these kinds of things. And now, you know, Victor has, and, and I have and other children coming through the programs like these have this um, opportunity if, if used correctly to, purposefully manipulate people's assumptions of who they must be and then to sort of unveil who they actually are. And just for a moment, they can come out ahead of the negotiation, I think. And maybe I'm speaking a little bit philosophically or theoretically, but um, I've seen that this is really true. It sounds like you're speaking about presenting yourself with an authenticity that a previous generation of non-white dancer might not have been able to. That's very concise. Yes, that's what I meant to say with all of the words that no, I no, said. no, no, <laughs> that's, that's perfect. <laughs> and I'm possibly uh, not having to go through the hassle of a whole bunch of code switching. The code switching. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. A hundred percent. That's exactly right. The hassle of the code switching, but also the experience of knowing how to code switch, I guess, is really what it comes to. That's the advantage. The advantage is that Victor has the experience mm -hmm. of knowing how to code switch very successfully. But he now also has the advantage of being able to choose whether he wants to or not. Right, right. 
That's exactly right. Yeah. This code switching thing is important. You know, I've told this story a couple of times, but it's really valuable. The, um, when I was younger, you know, I was, I was only seven or eight years old when I was in the, in the homeless shelter and concurrently in the ballet program in the outreach program. And the shelter was in the South Bronx in the early nineties, which in New York city in the South Bronx in the early nineties was really not a very interesting place to be. You know, it was burnt out cars and, and really horrible things. And the ballet studio was literally on Park Avenue. It was on Park <laughs> Avenue and 31st street in Manhattan. You know, there couldn't be two more uh, juxtaposed um, environments. And I was just a child, you know, and I would go every day, almost every day on the New York City subway on the, on the train um, from Hunts Point to Park Avenue. And I'd get on the train and I was physically, emotionally, mentally, intellectually, I was one kind of person. And when I got off the train on Park Avenue and walked a couple of blocks into the ballet studio, I was a different person. Even as a young boy, seven, eight, nine years old, I was code switching. And it was, I, I don't think I realized it at the time. In fact, I don't think at that time we even had that term code switching. But now looking back, clearly that's what was happening. And it was so interesting to me to be able to reinvent myself, to be the kind of person that walked and belonged on Park Avenue, you know, even if it was just for a couple of hours a day before I had to go back in the New York City subway and go 45 minutes back up to the Bronx and interact with a very different kind of environment. And that kind of practice and experience makes it so that I feel comfortable anywhere on the planet. I mean, hmm. it's, it, it's like I was saying about achieving. You, you, you can't throw me. I'm, I'm, you know, and someone like Victor, the same. We're, we're comfortable no matter where you put us because we've had these experiences, you know? Right. And finally, is there a piece in particular that you're really looking forward to in the coming year? Um, one of the first commissions that, I, that I've undertaken at New York Theatre Ballet is a series of commissions called Letters to My Father. And I had mentioned fathers earlier, and this is why. Letters to My Father, I'm, New York Theatre Ballet is commissioning a series of male dance makers and pairing them up with some other artist. Uh, thus far, it has been composers, but there's also um, a writer on board and maybe a filmmaker and other kinds of artists, and they're tasked with making a piece that is a letter to their father. For me, this kind of programming, this kind of piece, is the kind of piece that lends itself toward being accessible to everyone. Because everyone has a father or a father figure. Some people have two fathers, you know? And therefore... And everyone has something they wish they could have said to their father. That. Yeah. Especially and men, actually. Especially men. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for me, it's about making dances about people. These, this is real things, not swans and fairy tales and all that stuff. It's about making dances about people and making sure that those dances are uh, dances that people need to see now so that it's culturally relevant and it is urgent. And I say urgent in this case, in this context, because... I think that the conversations between sons and fathers has a lot to do with the changing landscape of masculinity, the definition of masculinity in America, the changing landscape of the nuclear family and the man's role in the nuclear family um, has to do with the conversations that we have or we should be having about the mass incarceration of black men and how the fatherless fatherhood, father absenteeism is something that's disproportionately distributed uh, amongst the American population. So all of these conversations that need to be happening, happening now. 
If you'd like to learn more about Stephen and read a longer version of this interview, just head to uncsa.edu slash artrestart. And be sure to watch the documentary Lift. It's available for rent on Amazon, Apple TV, and Google Play. It's really well worth your time, I promise. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts, thank you for listening. Thank you.